0: This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Pretty much everyone agrees that our education system is in crisis and needs to be reformed or overhauled or revolutionized. But today's guest, Zoe Weil, comes at it from a very different perspective. She's not just looking at the problem of students graduating without necessary skills. She's not just looking at the problem of bullying, she's not just looking at the problem of cheating. She's not just looking at the problem of students dropping out, not just looking at the problem of students not performing up to par, not just looking at the problem of standardized tests that don't measure true ability not just looking at the problem of achievement gap between wealthy and poor, between various socioeconomic groups, not just looking at the problem of effective versus ineffective teachers, it's not just looking at the problem of students bored, stressed, parents being frustrated, teachers being overwhelmed. She writes in her book, The World Becomes What We Teach, It's not just that schools aren't succeeding at achieving their stated objectives. It's that their stated objectives are no longer the right ones for today's world. There's a lot I could say about Zoe Weil. If you go to her website, zoewile.org, or look at her institute, the Institute for Humane Education, you'll discover that she's really a big deal. She's given seven TEDx talks She's written many books. She has influenced curricula nationally and internationally. But I'll let you do that stuff, because to me, the most impressive part of Zoe Weil is meeting her and hearing her talk about the kind of world that's possible and the steps we need to take to get there. So without further ado, Zoe Weil, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Howard. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Let's talk about your, your new book, The World Becomes What We Teach. But before we jump in, I feel like we need some, some background. So let's start by um, explaining what you do, because it's not like, you know, plumber or electrician or teacher. You've kind of created your own, your own path and your own name for what you do, which I think is Humane Educator. So <laughs> what, yeah. what, what on earth is a humane educator? And how did you get there?
1: Well, a humane educator is somebody who teaches about the interconnected issues of human rights and animal protection and environmental preservation with the goal of providing learners of all ages with the knowledge and the tools and the motivation to be solutionaries for a more just, peaceful, and sustainable world. So that's what a humane educator is. And really, all teachers should be humane educators and all parents should be humane educators because... If we care about children and we care about the future, then young people need to know what they can do to make a difference and contribute to more sustainable and healthy systems for everybody. And the way I ended up doing this work was that I was looking for a summer job back in the mid-1980s when I was in graduate school, and I applied to teach several week-long courses at a summer program that was offered to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and these were offered to middle school students. And I, there was a lot of things that I was interested in, and, and then I knew a little bit about enough to teach a week-long course, and so I contacted the director and I pitched a number of courses, and one of them was a course on environmental issues, and one was a course on animal issues, and then there were some others as well. And the animal issues course turned out to be the second most popular of the 60 courses offered that summer. And the environmental course was quite popular, too. And during that week, I watched in amazement as my students became different people over the course of a week. They became more engaged. They wanted to make a difference. They had fire in the belly to be more responsible and to make more compassionate choices. One boy became an activist overnight. I had taught about product testing on animals in the middle of the week, and he went home that night and he made his own homemade leaflets about product testing, you know, where oven cleaner or soap or personal care products are squeezed into the eyes of conscious rabbits and force fed to them in quantities that kill and smeared on their abraded skins. Now, this was in 1987. He did not have a personal computer. So that meant that he hand-wrote his leaflets, Hmm. and when he came back into class the next day, he wanted to hand them out, and not just to his classmates. He wanted to hand them out on a Philadelphia street corner. So while the rest of us had lunch, he was standing on the corner handing out his leaflets. He'd literally become an activist overnight. And that was the summer I really found my life's work as a humane educator, and I went on to create a humane education program in the Philadelphia area where We went in and and taught after-school classes and assembly programs and classroom presentations. We were reaching about 10,000 kids a year, and that was great, but it wasn't enough. So in 1996, I co-founded the Institute for Humane Education in order to train teachers to be humane educators, to spread this field so that everywhere there would be humane educators, and students everywhere would be learning to be solutionaries.
0: Okay. So when I hear the term humane educator, it reminds me a little bit of the term health food. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you go to the supermarket, and there's, there's like, you know, half a mile of aisles, and there's six feet of health food, and you think, like, why do we need the word health?
1: Right, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I you know, let me interrupt you right there to say I look forward to the day when humane is not an adjective just in front of education, that when we talk about education, we will be talking about solutionary focused humane education. That will be that will be what education means.
0: Okay. So you've used the word solutionary a few times. I think we can all hear, you know, solution and revolutionary echoing in it. But what do you what do you mean exactly by Solutionary?
1: So I define a Solutionary as somebody who has the knowledge and the skills to identify unsustainable and unjust practices wherever they occur and to come up with viable and cost-effective and practical solutions to those problems that are good for everybody, all people, all species, and the environment. Okay. So
0: one of the things I loved about... The, the book and also in, in some of your, your TED talks is you, you talk about imagine, you know, instead of or in addition to debating societies, we had sort of solutionary teams of, of, of kids who are trained to look at problems from a point of view of we can solve this. Um, so h- how did you come up with that as a concept, like, I, you know, I was, I was a school teacher for many, many years, and I was pretty um, sort of socially conscious in, in some ways. But I, I never got past sort of, let's tell everybody how terrible things are. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that was yeah. like, I was, I was like a fun PE teacher. And then you had me in social studies, and you had to bring Kleenex. How did, how did you arrive at this idea of really, you know, empowering optimism that that kids and that human beings could find the solutions.
1: Well, you know, I think that the inception of the idea happened when I was sitting in my car. I was listening to NPR, and they were airing the Intelligence Squared debate uh, that's aired regularly on NPR and which is taped at NYU and. These are forums where there's some issue. It's framed as an either-or question, and they bring an expert to debate one side or another. And that particular day that I was in my car, the debate was about whether or not the United States was responsible for Mexico's drug wars. And I just found that framing to be ludicrous, that that why were we debating about whether or not the U.S. was responsible for Mexico's drug wars, which is quite a complex issue, instead of gathering experts together to use their minds and their wisdom and their knowledge to come up with solutions to the problem. And then it got me thinking about all of the debate teams in schools. And in my own community, you can't graduate from our local high school if you don't participate in in a debate and it's not that students don't learn important skills in debates they do they learn good research and critical thinking skills and they learn persuasion and influence skills but it it seems like the end doesn't isn't worth it in those same skills could be taught and, and taught probably better along with learning about collaboration and experiencing collaboration with the goal being that you solve the problem rather than you know get assigned to one side or the other of it. And so that's where the idea came about and then we partnered with a professor in Utah to bring Solutionary Congresses to the state of Utah and now we're expanding them and in fact it's one of our biggest priorities now to further develop and expand Solutionary Congresses and have teams of young solutionaries working together to come up with ideas and you know you can imagine what would happen at a congress or or, you know at congresses around the country if we brought in social entrepreneurs and social investors and legislators to hear these students really good ideas and the really good ones and the ones that are really viable we could implement them which would be a win-win for the students for the communities and for the problems that we're facing in the world.
0: Now, when I think about sort of researching problems, uh, and you and you write, you write, and we'll talk about education. I hope um, you know that, that when people look at what's wrong with education, they tend to have very sort of black and white issues, like kids are overprogrammed, or they aren't disciplined enough, or they don't have to do enough rote learning, or there's bullying, or teachers are overworked. You know these very sort of facile solutions to to which people, you know, these, these facile problems to which people will have very, um, you know, one one or two dimensional solutions. But when you look at the real scope of the problem, you know, how far it extends into not just education, but in culture, society, economics, philosophy. Or when you look at the, you know, these various problems, how does that not the, the, when you see the, the, the tentacles of the problem? How does that not depress you? <laughs>
1: Um, you know, it, it does depress me at times um, and I think that, you know, what's frustrating is that the framing of problems is, is part of the problem. We put our attention where a problem is framed and sometimes that framing prevents us from coming up with solutions and instead forces us to choose sides. So, you know, what you just mentioned, I mean, in my new book, The World Becomes What We Teach, I talk about all of these different ways in which problems in education are framed, and they're often framed in opposite ways. So, you know, you'll have some people say that there's too much waste in schools in terms of money spent, and other people say there's not enough money available in schools. And some people, you know, will say that... Students aren't doing well enough on standardized tests, and other people will say the standardized tests are the problem. So we're just arguing about different things instead of looking at the whole package of education and saying this is how we can solve these challenges. Um, And, you know, a perfect example of this is a few years ago the movie Waiting for Superman was released and, you know, it was a documentary about education and yet it was a major blockbuster film. And within several months of that movie being released, another film called Race to Nowhere was released and it was also about education. Now these were two really big, really important films about education and they addressed opposite problems. Waiting for Superman addressed the problem of students not doing well enough and not being literate and numerate, and there not being enough of these charter schools for them to apply to, and so children were falling through the cracks. And Race to Nowhere addressed the fact that students were just overburdened and they were suffering from burnout and depression because of, having to take so many AP courses and do so many extracurriculars. I mean, these were really looking at completely opposing problems. Now, how is it possible that two films came out simultaneously really addressing what they thought were the problem in education, and they were apparently opposite problems? And unfortunately, neither one of them really came up with a solution. And so this is just, uh, you know, you asked if I find this depressing, and I do, because... Solutions to these problems are, are possible, and they are limited by our imagination and our ability to understand the complexity of interconnected systems and address them. And that's why I'm so committed to this kind of education, solutionary-focused education, because if we give young people the critical thinking skills and the system thinking skills and the solutionary thinking skills, and if we foster in them habits of mind and heart, like compassion and honesty and integrity, they will inevitably reject that either-or thinking and strive to solve problems.
0: Mm. It's, it's almost like once, once you really get systems thinking and you apply it in a compassionate way, th- this, th- these, these movies no longer pass the sniff test of like, that's where, the, you know, that's where I'm going to put my energy. It's, it's almost right. like as, as a society, we, we haven't learned that. I'm I'm thinking of a, a a recent Facebook post by a friend that I went to college with about there's this new uh, new movie uh, Woman in Gold about uh, yes, stolen I works thought. of art and it's one of the characters that is based on someone that my friend and I both knew in college, who's, you know, the lawyer who, uh, who got involved in trying to, you know, recapture this stuff. And he said, I I haven't seen the movie yet. But my friend said, you know, it's funny, they had to make him into kind of a bad guy at the beginning. Like, it wasn't an interesting enough story without him having a very sort of unidimensional, you know, bad guy to good guy character arc. And I think there's, there's so much in our culture that, you know, like, you know, all of a sudden you're looking at waiting for Superman and, and you've got this single problem that we can all get behind and we can have slogans about and we can get angry about and we can point fingers at teachers unions. But when you're when you're looking at the problem as systematically as you do, um, then a, a lot of the the anger and blame and emotion kind of goes out of it a little bit, doesn't it?
1: I, I think it does, yes, and that is really interesting what you say about, you know, we have to have a villain. We have to cast everything in these, um, in these either or terms to engage ourselves, and that has to shift because it's not, a, it's not a viable approach to solving the problems we face, which are so interconnected and, and complex. Mm. So
0: what, one example of that that's in my mind, and I'd love for you to share it, and sort of contrasting what you said earlier about this NPR debate about is America responsible for Mexico's drug problems, is a, a discussion that you have in the book about the relationship between um, causes of death in America and the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Can you talk a little bit about that as an example of the kind of thinking you're, you're hoping to to lead us toward?
1: Sure. So, we have developed a unit of study for secondary school students that revolves around the question, what do the primary causes of death of people in the United States have to do with the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico? Mm -hmm. Now, when you hear that question, you know, it might might be a startling question. First of all, many people don't know what a dead zone is. So a dead zone is an area in the ocean that is hypoxic where no life exists anymore and these dead zones are growing all over the planet and there is a large one in the Gulf of Mexico so what what does that possibly have to do with the primary causes of death of people in the United States and what are the primary causes of death of people in the United States so the question itself begs many many questions And those many, many questions lead students down a path of system thinking. And so what happens in our unit and as students grapple with answering this question is that they learn about our agricultural system, our economic system, our political system, our corporate and advertising and marketing system our healthcare system, all these different systems interact with our ecosystems and our body systems, our anatomy, to eventually help them realize that the foods that we are growing along the Mississippi River in the United States, which requires massive quantities of chemical fertilizer that that leach out into our waterways, get into the Mississippi, pollute the Mississippi, wind up in the Gulf of Mexico, and create algal blooms that then cause the dead zone, are the same food systems that are contributing to the major causes of death, heart disease, a few forms of cancer, stroke, diabetes. And so once students understand that these systems are connected, they then take it even further. Why do we produce food in this way? Why are we growing monoculture feed crops to feed to animals so that we are both impacting the environment and impacting our health? Why are we doing that? And we realize that so many systems come into play to perpetuate the most unhealthy foods. So, for example, our economic and political system subsidizes the very foods that make us sick. So imagine, if you will, a teacher walking into a classroom and holding up an organic apple and a fast food cheeseburger and asking students, how is it possible that these two foods cost about the same amount of money? I mean, Hmm. think about it for a second. It, It seems to be absurd that something as involved and processed requiring feed crops, water, land, animals, many different um, pieces of, of that puzzle that go into a fast food cheeseburger, that that could possibly cost the same amount as an apple off of a tree. It just doesn't make any sense until you understand the way that our political and economic system work and the fact that cheeseburgers are subsidized, fast food is subsidized in so many different ways. So as students understand these connections and as they learn about these systems, then they can focus on their solutionary work. And what would that solutionary work look like? Well, you could imagine that at the end of the unit and in this unit that we've, that we've created, which people are going to be able to access, teachers, schools, camps, nonprofits, it's a six-week unit. And the final two weeks are students preparing for and presenting their solutions. So what might those solutions be? Well, in some schools, maybe some kids will work on creating healthy meal plans for their school cafeteria that defy the system of the school lunch program that's providing so many unhealthy foods. And another group of students might propose legislation and meet with legislators to uh, actually propose no longer subsidizing foods that destroy the environment and destroy human health. And so that could be another area that people go into. Another group of students might be working with scientists and farmers on sustainable agricultural systems or on bioremediation of pollutants. And there's so many areas that students could be working to actually become solutionaries from this systems thinking work.
0: Mm. So this this really is a long game. isn't it? Because, you know, a lot, a lot of the entrenched interests that benefit from the current systems aren't going to roll over. You know, the 1% is not going to all of a sudden say, oh, you guys are right. Let's all live in harmony. But, but you're creating a generation or several generations at this point of people that when they grow up are going to, you know, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore in a, in a very positive way. Is, is that kind of how you think about why focus on children?
1: Um, yes and no. I mean, the reason to, uh, first of all, the Institute for Humane Education aims to educate people of all ages. But, yes, our focus is on young people. And the reason it's on young people is multifaceted. It becomes very difficult to put out fires. And if we could simply learn how to prevent problems from starting and, and transform systems in small ways and large ways, we can create a just world. I mean, it's certainly possible to do that. And the way that we at the Institute for Humane Education think that this should be done is by addressing the root system, which underlies all other systems, and that's the system of education. There is no other system that affects every other system the way education does, and so that's why we focus on it. Because if we can create the shift there, we're going to see all of these other things change. Now, the 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 piece that I'm not sure I entirely agree with you on is that I don't think that um, these kids are going to really grow up with that you know the the image that network image of I'm mad at and I'm not going to take it anymore because. From a very young age, if they're educated in this way, they will be able to see their efficacy over and over and over again, and they will be able to see the changes that they implement. So even from a young age, young people can be solutionaries and grow increasingly empowered about their ability to create change. And as that happens, then everything will shift. And, you know, I I know what you're saying about You know, the 1% aren't going to just roll over. But the 1% have grandchildren and great-grandchildren and children as well. And, you know, the writing is on the wall. If we don't change systems and make them more sustainable and make them more peaceful and make them more just, then our children and their children and their children are going to suffer. And a lot of the systems that we have in place, they... They're entrenched because we don't think about them and we don't think about how to shift them. But, you know, if you, if you just think about um, why it's hard to change a system, it's, it's, it's often hard just to extricate oneself from a system. So, you know, I'm vegan. I've been vegan for 26 years. And when I first became vegan, there weren't a lot of vegans around. It wasn't all that easy to find substitutes for a lot of foods that I liked. You know, the vegan cheese options were disgusting. The <laughs> vegan um, uh, frozen dessert options were barely any better. You know, you pretty much have to rely on getting, you know, sorbet. You can never get a, a nice ice cream substitute. The soy milk wasn't very good. I mean, it was just a really different world. And now, you know, you have all of these foods and and people who aren't vegan happily eat them and don't even know that they're not eating, you know, a, a dairy product or, or animal flesh. They just have no idea. And so most people are happy to go along with whatever systems are out there and just go about their lives. So if those systems are just in sustainable and humane, people are going to avail themselves of them. And so that's what we have to get to, that point where where those systems are changed and people regularly use them without even having to consider it or consider it a sacrifice. And we can get there.
0: Mm. So there's so much I'd love to unpack there. I want to talk about about food and the relationship between food and diet and being an overall solutionary. But I'm, I'm really struck by the the idea of you know doing little things in our own lives that, that in some in some ways in, according to your book can make a big difference and in some ways are, are sort of window dressing so you talk like for example you talk about the problem of bullying and we t- kids are taught to be like proximally kind i think is the word you use as a you know, but at the same time they're participating in systems that are unspeakably cruel to other human beings, to animals, to the environment. And that's that's kind of a hard thing to make people look at, isn't it? That, you know, even as a vegan, if I'm eating, you know, lettuce from a from a giant monoculture farm in California that's using stolen water and and migrant labor like (laughs) there's you know, there's no end to to what I need to be aware of if I want to be more than proximally kind.
1: That that's true, and it's um, so. There's two things there that that I want to address, and um, one of them is that we can't sort of buy ourselves into or out of a more peaceful, just, and sustainable world. And you know that is why boycotts tend to be very, very specific. You know, when a, a nonprofit says boycott X, it's usually a company because it it directs attention to that company. Now. 50 other companies could be doing the same awful thing. But by boycotting the single company, you draw attention to it. And that generally tends to be the purpose of a, of a boycott. And, you know, it's corollary. A boycott is when, you know, you buy things that are produced more sustainably and ethically and um, humanely. And those things are important, and I don't want to minimize that. and And they're important largely because they are evidence of our own integrity you know if I want to um, talk to somebody about changing unjust or cruel systems while I'm eating a fast-food cheeseburger then what integrity do I have why should they even listen to me so it's important for our own integrity for our own ability to model the message that we want for other people to even listen to us that to the best of our ability we strive to make ethical choices But those ethical choices will not, by themselves, transform the world. And so that's what I'm getting at. And when I talk in my book about this proximal kindness, you know, we have such a huge focus on bullying now as the um, most important aspect of character education is to learn not to be a bully. And bullying is awful. I mean, don't get me wrong. We, We definitely need to to educate children in such a way that they are not bullies and they know um, how, to, how to help a bully to become not a bully, and those are important things. But we also can't forget that for every bully in the classroom, there is, there are there's the rest of the classroom that might be wearing clothes produced by children working as slaves or in sweatshops halfway around the world to produce those clothes, and that our children need to understand that we are are all embedded in systems that sort of require that we not be aware of the effects of our choices. And once aware, then we have the capacity to make a difference, and that's what we need to educate children to do to make a difference. I mean, wouldn't it be great to get the bully in the school, you know, bully in the classroom to realize what's happening and to become a leader and trying to change something and in that process become transformed into a person who can make a difference and become transformed from a bully into a changemaker and a leader? I mean, that would be pretty exciting.
0: Mm. So how, how do we do that? And I'm thinking specifically about my vegan friends who advocate um, for, for animals and for, for the, the, you know, the vegan diet and lifestyle by handing out leaflets, by showing people what happens to a crated pig or to a de-beaked chicken or to a hoist and shackled cow. And if anything, <laughs> they're driving people away from the message. Rather, rather than inviting people in it's 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 so hard for people to see that what looks to them to be normal life is really part of this this horrible matrix of suffering how, how do you suggest that we begin to educate and convert people
1: well um you know education is is the key conversion i think is it. i i would um I think part of the challenge is when we even think that we're out to convert people. That's often what pushes people away. Um, most people don't like to be proselytized at. Most people don't like to be sort of the subject of somebody else's conversion. But all people generally like learning. Learning is interesting. It's just how is it done? And there are some amazing leafletters and tablers out there who welcome others in, to learn about an issue, and they're remarkable at educating others. And as we know, there are also people who are so angry about the suffering that they know about that it's very hard to maintain their compassion when other people don't share their concerns and so sometimes we see activists who you know might yell at other people or get angry at them instead of invite them and this is a practice I mean everybody needs an outlet for their anger and you know often it's their anger that spurred them to be activists to begin with and everybody needs to find the place where they can be whole and joyful and happy people because it for no other reason than strategically other people don't want to join a club with angry, demoralized, uh, rageful, and despairing people. But they would like to join a club of healthy, happy, joyful people. So how can we educate in ways that are inviting and where people say, oh, I want to learn about that. I want to know, you know, what's your secret? Why are you so happy? And, and why are you so healthy? And, and what's going on? And so that is just the real challenge for any activist, whether they're animal activists or they're activists working on human rights or environmental issues. It's just so easy to become uh, very cynical and depressed, given the state of the world. Mm. But even just saying that, let me just add that it's easy to be cynical and depressed, and yet things are getting better, and, and it's really hard to remember that in the face of the suffering we see and the media that we see, but in fact, we are living in less cruel times, we are living in less discriminatory times, and we are living in less violent times, and the trend is toward greater compassion and greater peace, and we have to remember that, like, like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice, and we're getting there.
0: Hmm. Uh, so let's uh, let's talk about the true price game because that seems like it's a, a, a sort of a fundamental strategy that you use to help people come to their own conclusions rather than be converted by uh, by intellectual force.
1: You... Yeah, well, true price is it, it's sort of the quintessential humane education solutionary focused activity. And it is a very, very flexible activity. People can find They can download it on our website, humaneeducation.org, in our resources section. And True Price could be a whole course. True Price could be a um, unit. True Price could be your dissertation. Or True Price could be an activity you do in a single day in a classroom. And essentially what it is is you take an everyday item, could be something you eat or something you wear or an electronic device and you ask a series of questions about that item and you do research to become a critical thinker and a systems thinker and a solutionary thinker so first you ask what are the effects both positive and negative of this item on you as an individual on other people on other species and on the environment And then you ask, what systems are in place that perpetuate this item? And then you ask, what would be an alternative that does more good and less harm? And finally, what systems would need to change to make alternatives either possible if they don't yet exist or ubiquitous if they do? So you can imagine doing true price on a cheeseburger or bottled water or on an article of clothing or on an iPod. And, uh, or an iPhone, and you can imagine all the things that students would learn or any of us will learn. You can do this in your own home. Just open your closet or open your pantry or your refrigerator and pull out an item. And what's amazing is just how much there is to learn and how in today's world with the Internet there's so much we can learn. And once we do, we're on the road to making choices that are more aligned with our values. So true price is just a wonderful, critical thinking and and solutionary focused activity that anybody can use.
0: Mm. So wh- how, how do you deal with the fact that there are differences, not just of opinion, but different interpretations of facts? Like I'm thinking particularly of you know, climate change debate. You know, there are denialists who say that that's, that's not real. Um, there are arguments in, in my own sort of health and nutrition community around vegan versus paleo. Um, right, it's, it, it seems like it would be fairly straightforward to find out the true price of something. But it turns out it's pretty hard a lot of the time. And if you're not an expert and if you don't have access to primary research, you're kind of at the mercy of like, who you believe.
1: That's a good point, and uh, I forget who it was who you said you're entitled to your own opinions but not your own facts. Um, facts are facts, but discovering what a fact is is tough, as you say. Now, everybody does have access to primary research who has access to a computer, but there's so much information out there and so much conflicting information out there. And so it, it is our responsibility to to very very thoughtfully and with great integrity and honesty seek out information to make sure that our beliefs are based in facts and based in real research and there is as much non-legitimate research about veganism from the pro-vegan side as there is from the anti-vegan side and the same is true about something like paleo and so finding the 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 best research is does take quite a bit of effort and it takes a lot of integrity and it's interesting because um i was just designing a critical thinking self-reflective assessment sheet for people to do so In this, people choose a belief that they have, and that belief could be something like a vegan diet is the healthiest diet. And then they answer a series of questions. Why do I believe this is true? What's the evidence for it? Have I done basic research myself to ascertain this validity? How much is this belief tied up with my personal identity? How would I feel if I found out this belief wasn't true? And so on. And so for whatever the belief is, you know, whether it's that you deny that climate change is happening or whatever it is, it doesn't matter what side you're on. We all have our beliefs, and very, very few of us have done the basic research to determine whether our beliefs are actually valid and true. And it's a really important thing to learn to do because when you do, you mm, suddenly become a little bit more humble and a little bit more careful. And so for, for me, for example, um, while I think that the evidence is really powerful and really strong that a vegan diet is very, very healthy, that's not the primary reason why I became vegan. I became vegan because I didn't want to cause pain, suffering, and death to other animals if I didn't have to I wanted to do the most good in the least harm I could through all my choices and so if I found out tomorrow that a vegan diet was pretty healthy but not the most healthy that wouldn't shake me at all because it's not my primary reason for being vegan it's absolutely possible to be healthy and be vegan that's enough for me But if I had wrapped my entire identity up in a vegan diet being the most healthy or a paleo diet being the most healthy and my identity was completely um, enmeshed with that, then it would be harder for me to think critically about any evidence to the contrary. And so I think that that's the challenge for all of us is to be willing to be open to our beliefs being challenged, to find out the truth, and to be receptive to whatever that truth is. And so that's what mm. I hope that people will learn to do in school.
0: Mm. And what, one of the side effects of humility is that you get to work with other people more effectively.
1: Exactly. Yes. I mean, you know, when one of the things that has been really helpful to me um, mm. is this, principle that I live by, which is the MOGO principle, to do the most good and the least harm through all of my choices to people, animals, and the environment. Now, sometimes it's really easy to make a choice that does the most good and the least harm, and sometimes it's really hard. And it it becomes hard when one recognizes uh, one's blind spots. So, for example, I did not find it all that hard to become vegan. I just, you know, I just no longer perceived animals as food as somebody to eat and even though i loved the taste of meat i was really clear that i was no longer going to eat animals and i could be very in the early years of that transition uh, i could be very self-righteous because I wasn't looking at all of my other choices. I wasn't looking at different ways that my choices might be affecting other people. So, for example, when I bought um, some new clothing, was it produced in a sweatshop? If I got a chocolate bar, was it produced with slavery to you know, child slavery in Africa? You know, I wasn't aware of those things. But the more I challenged myself to become more aware, the more I realized wow, it's really hard. So, for example, I love to go hiking, and I regularly drive to Acadia National Park, which is about 40 minutes for me to go for a hike. And so I have a Prius, so that's better than, you know, if I had an Escalade or an Explorer, but it still uses energy that I don't need to use for exercise. I could do something else closer to home, but I choose to do that because it's so important to me. And knowing that I'm making a choice that, that does cause harm to the environment allows me to have more humility in the face of other people saying to me, oh, you know, I hear about that, you know, issue about factory farming, but I really love eating chicken and I'm just not willing to give it up. And so I can have a little bit more humility because I'm aware of the things I'm not able to give up. And so then I can talk to them without self-righteousness and maybe they and I can get closer to making more humane choices.
0: Mm. One one of the things I loved uh, in the book is the the description of the the hypothetical group of kids, each of whom has a very different set of strengths and how they can work together together to be much more effective on an issue than, than, than they could be alone. you talk a little bit about, you know, h- how you get kids? Because it's, um, well, there's very little education that I've seen or been part of that really is focused on the, the seed gifts of individuals as opposed to kind of getting everybody, you know, USDA stamped graduate. Like they all have the same. How, how do you think about... Nurturing the individual gifts so that people can bring their collective strengths to to be solutionaries
1: Um, That's a great question You know, I think that there are certain standards that we want all children to meet We want all children to be literate, all children to be numerate, All children to understand the scientific method and a number of other things And yet there are some students who are going to be, you know, great public speakers and others who are going to be stupendous scientists, and others who are going to be beautiful artists. And why not help young people to identify the issues that most concern them and to think about what are they good at and what do they love to do? And then you get these students together who all care about the same issue – and some of whom are really good at art, and some of whom are really good at science and math, and some of whom are really good writers and speakers. And you get them working together on that issue, and they're doing what they love to do, and they're doing what they're good at, and together they're just a force. And I think that that's not hard to do in schools. I mean, the the Internet has changed the way the world works and the way schools should work. And there is no reason not to have students learning at their own levels, in their, in their, it, through individualized learning programs, personalized learning programs, and then having them collaborate where they can make a difference and achieve so much more together.
0: Hmm. And it's, it seems like the, the people who have found their true voice, who are, who are really kind of in the groove of their gifts, in, this, in the pursuit of something meaningful, are in general just going to be much less harmful to the world. Like they, they don't need as much to make up for the hole caused by by fitting in.
1: Well, and if they're educated to be solutionaries and they're educated about world, real world issues and they're educated to care, then they're they're going to make a difference because that's what they've learned to do.
0: Hmm. So can, um, I love this word solutionary and I'm, I'm looking for people to apply it to like sort of in a pop culture kind of way. Um, can you think of examples that, you know, that I and my audience would be familiar with Of people that you would look at and say they are they're solving problems as solutionaries you know, according to your your framework and your definition?
1: Uh, Sure. Um, They're all over the place. I mean, the the creators of Beyond Meat, there's a solutionary, right? Creating a food that meat eaters and vegans are both going to like and that's healthy and high in protein and and affordable, there's a solutionary right there. Um, Mohammed Yunus, who many people are familiar with, he won the Nobel Peace Prize uh, for his work in microfinance, you know, here was somebody who was a professor of economics in Bangladesh during his country's great famine, and there were people on the streets who didn't have enough to eat, and he was a professor of economics wondering, well, how is everything that I know helpful to the people in my own village? And so he ended up launching the microfinance. Um, movement that lifted millions and millions of people out of poverty by loaning very, very small amounts of money, mostly to women who had no collateral, which completely turned banking upside down, right? So, you know, the way the banking system works is if you don't have collateral, you can't borrow money. And he said that does, that's, that's the reverse of what it should be. If you have nothing, you should be able to borrow money. And in doing so, he started the Grameen Bank, and all these people were lifted out of poverty. Now, I think it's so wonderful that he won the Nobel Peace Prize, because you could have imagined him winning the Nobel Prize for economics because he was an economics professor, but he won the Nobel Peace Prize because when we lift people out of poverty, we're helping to bring about peace.
0: Mm. So it sounds like in, in both of these cases and in, in others that now you've sparked me to think about, there's there's a real element of of elegance of almost like, oh, of course, like you know, two things that came across my Facebook feed in the last couple of days. One was um, retired racehorses being taken care of by violent male prisoners as, as, a, pro, as a sort of a rehab program. Uh-huh. and another was a, a nursing home that includes a daycare center. And I look at both of those and go, oh, that's, that's so obvious that these, yep. th- these two groups need each other, that yep. the synergy is unbelievable. And it's, re- it's really kind of a function of, of creativity. You know, a friend of mine we used to quote all the time, I don't know who said it originally, that um, creativity is the sudden cessation of stupidity. Yeah. It seems like there's just something very playful about solutionary solutions.
1: I I think so too.
0: So how do you, how do you get people to to think playfully about some of the biggest problems that we have?
1: Um again, you know, I still focus on what happens in schools and we have to shift it. I mean, I I think Um, Our focus right now in education on getting students prepared to take these high-stakes standardized tests and grading them all the time and turning uh, schooling into a competitive endeavor is just the wrong approach. And I think schools can be the most incredibly exciting, playful, joyful, creative places where young people are empowered to make a difference in the world. And that's where it begins me. And that's why that's my particular solution. You know, I, if I'm a solutionary, it's the solutionary in the field of education.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so what, what do you see now you've you've been doing this since I guess, 1996, formally with the uh, with the Institute for Humane Education? What what are some things you see in the kids? You know, I assume you get them at a certain point where they're products of our culture. <laughs> they're they may be into you know video games and fast food and um and not very reflective <laughs> and what happens to them as they go through your curriculum
1: you know um most young people who who receive this kind of education unfortunately respond um with oh my gosh this is the best thing that's ever happened i mean i In just, you know, a week of this kind of education, I will get letters from students saying this was the best week of my life. And the reason I say unfortunately is because it shouldn't be the best week of their life, right? That's depressing if spending a week with me is the best week of some teenager's life because her whole education should be this way. And we're not there yet, but more and more teachers are doing this work and you know we train teachers to do that. We have online graduate programs, we have online courses, we have free resources on our website, humaneeducation.org, and you know, I hope some listeners of this podcast will avail themselves of these. But we have to get to the point where this is the norm, not the exception. And you know, one thing that happened a couple of years ago that I found truly alarming was when I was invited to speak at a middle school And this was in an affluent suburb um, in Connecticut. And I spoke to these kids. These were fifth and sixth graders. I asked them what they thought were the biggest problems in the world. And they produced a list that was similar to every other list I'd ever seen. I mean, even down to sex trafficking, and these were 10- and 11-year-olds. And then I asked them to raise their hands if they could imagine us solving these problems. And of the 45 kids in that room, only a handful raised their hands. And that was so worrisome to me, because I thought, if they can't even imagine us solving these problems, what's going to motivate them to try? And the reality is that young people know about the terrible things that are happening in the world even though the world is getting better they know about the terrible things that are happening and if they don't feel a sense of efficacy and empowerment then that is a recipe for apathy and cynicism and potentially despair and so to me the what has to happen now is we have to agree that education needs to be real-life and solutionary focused and not focused on passing standardized tests and until we make that change I'm worried that things will not get better in our educational system now there are many schools that are taking a different approach and those schools are getting attention and that's great and as we develop more solutionary congresses and you see them happening all over and schools and teachers and by the way we have a free downloadable solutionary congress toolkit on our website as teachers start doing this, and as these stories get told, I think we'll see a shift in education.
0: Mm. Now, there's, there's a lot of obstacles for teachers, for a teacher who's listening to this who says, by, by golly, I want to do this, right? You, you mentioned in the book there's a school, there's a, a law in, under consideration at this point in West Virginia that would bar discussion of social studies from the classroom.
1: I know, can uh, you believe that? I mean, it's just crazy, right? I mean, and and there are states where, you know, you can't teach about evolution um, or you have to teach about uh, creationism alongside evolution. I mean, it it is frightening. And, you know, we have to change this. This is what we have to work on. This is, to me, the underlying issue of all other issues.
0: Right. And, you know, just just to kind of call it out, you know, you're you're a very sort of peaceful, kind, soft spoken person. You're talking about, you know, wonderful values of love and harmony. And yet you're really calling people to to the to the barricades, in a sense, that this is uh, this is this is not for the faint of heart to to stand up.
1: (laughs) I try to be a a peaceful person for sure. Um, I'm not sure I'm very soft soft-spoken um i don't um i don't believe in violence as a way to get to um a non-violent world so in that sense i i take a peaceful approach and education is a peaceful approach but no you are absolutely right i mean this this is a a real struggle for the future
0: right because I mean, the, the easiest thing in many cases is violence. I'm just scrolling through my, my Facebook feed for this morning. And there's a good friend of mine posts a, an article about the Dominican Republican kicking out Haitian families. And right below that is a, someone else post about um, genocide against Muslims in Zanzibar. And, you know, my first reaction to all of this is, well, <laughs> let's, go, let's go stop it. Right. Let's go bomb them. But, you know, a solutionary approach sometimes, I guess, takes a lot more time. It's, it's, it's sort of less immediately satisfying to solve the root problem, you know, to, to drain the swamp instead of uh, swatting at mosquitoes.
1: You know, I hear you, and one could say that this is the long-term approach, but it, it's, it can also be quite immediate. I mean, imagine a solutionary team, coming up with a solution to a problem and that, that solution gets implemented. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be, I, I think changing our educational system for sure is a long-term approach, but there are many, many solutions to be had that are, are more short-term.
0: Hmm. So where, where are you now in terms of changing the education system? What, what, what's in the works What's available for people right now? You mentioned a couple of resources uh, on your website, but uh, where you know how, how can people who are listening to this uh, shoulder up and and push this thing forward?
1: Well, we would love to be able to help anybody who's listening with bringing solutionary experiences into classrooms and schools and communities everywhere. And as I said, we have a lot of resources to that effect. We are now working on further developing and expanding our solutionary congresses and we are going to have much more to offer in the coming months to help people to really bring solutionary focused experiences into their communities and classrooms so you know if people go to our website sign up to be on our e-news and stay abreast and um, again if you really want to be a solutionary focused educator, humane educator. We have graduate programs that are online and they are really pretty amazing programs and we'd love to have more people who want to be full-time humane educators bringing this into their communities.
0: Mm. Beautiful. So I, I don't want to let you go without asking you to finish the story of that group of middle school kids in Connecticut who came up with such a exhaustive and comprehensive and horrible list of problems and couldn't think of any solutions. What did you do?
1: Thank you for asking because this is a wonderful way to, to close out uh, this podcast. So I asked those children to close their eyes and to take a few deep breaths and to imagine that they were very, very old and that they were approaching the end of their life. And I decided Described the world of their future, a world in which we had solved so many of the problems that they had named, a world where the air was clean to breathe and the water was no longer polluted, a world without poverty, a world where nations did not resort to violence in order to solve conflict, a world in which we treated other species with respect and care and compassion. And I let them know that while it wasn't a perfect world, it was a very, very good world. And then I asked them to imagine a child coming up and asking them questions, because that child had been studying history in school and learning about much darker times, times that they lived through. And so I asked them to imagine the child asking questions that they answered until the child asked this final question. What role did you play in helping to bring about this better world? So I asked those kids to imagine what they would want to be able to tell the child that they did. And while their eyes were still closed, I asked them to raise their hands if now they could imagine us solving the problems that they had listed. And this time, of those 45 kids, Only a handful did not raise their hands. The rest could now imagine that we could solve our problems. And it was at that moment that I realized that, you know, unless a child is is terribly oppressed or exploited, that by and large, that cynicism and apathy and hopelessness do not run very deep. And it doesn't take very much to turn it around.
0: Mm. That's... That's so beautiful, and it's, I, I hope that everyone was doing that along with you as you were describing the, uh, the thought experiment. And maybe you know, folks want to rewind about a minute and a half and, and go through it, because uh, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful way to reframe, to see that we, we do have so much power and when we're, you know, when we're in an education system and we're called upon, as the, the U.S. Department of Education says, to promote student achievement in preparation for global competitiveness, that, that there's that's that's a fairly low bar. Right? And, yeah. and, it, and it may not even be the right bar that that's that, right. that raising raising children to create a better world is not only possible, it actually probably would take a heck of a lot less effort because we'd have to we'd have to fight against so so many fewer forces. You know, it's it's kind absolutely. of like getting the water to just letting the water flow downhill where it where it wants to go to the, you know, allowing the better angels of our nature, to uh, to carry us to that world. Yep,
1: absolutely
0: well Zoe Weil thank you so much this has been such an honor to have this conversation with you and I really well, appreciate all, all the work you have done and continue to do and all the collaborators that you have um, inspired and orchestrated one more time the website for people to go to, to check out your initiatives
1: it's humaneeducation.org and thank you so much Howard oh, my
0: pleasure and may you go from strength to strength Likewise. take care. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Zoe Weil as much as I did. Your action step today, if you choose to take one, is to play the real price game with somebody and see where it leads you. If you want to support the Plant Yourself podcast, one of the easiest ways to do it is to go to iTunes and leave a review. Give me some stars and write what you think. That helps other people who aren't necessarily searching for it in particular, but looking for information about health, wellness, environment, ecology, diet, nutrition, that sort of thing. There's a bunch of events coming up in the Plant Yourself calendar. If you are local to the Triangle region of North Carolina, you can find out all about that on my website, plantyourself.com. Garden update. The blueberries have pretty much stopped producing. I think we've probably got 40 or 50 pounds from about 10 bushes so yay nature Um, we're getting more tomatoes than we can handle and the okra started to come in we made a nice uh, throw everything in the pot gumbo last night i'm staying indoors today it's uh, supposed to reach 98 with a heat index of 105 so i hope that wherever you are you are staying cool and as always be well my friends